This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. I'm speaking today with James Lapine, author of Putting It Together, How Stephen Sondheim and I Created Sunday in the Park with George. James, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I I really enjoyed the book, so I'm very excited to talk with you about it. Well, good. What happens when you don't enjoy a book and you have to talk to an author? (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll answer that question uh, off the record. Of course, I love all the books that I... uh, Oh, there you go. Good. um, One of the things I really enjoyed about the book is is how candid you are. I mean, you you interview uh, almost everybody, I I, I guess everybody who you could interview who was involved with the original production of The Sunday in the Park with George. And some of your questions are things like, you never really seem to like me that much. What was your problem with me? <laughs> well, so. yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I was one of the reasons that I wrote the book was because I was, um, I just had the, it was such a monumental moment in my life. And uh, I was just very curious uh, how other people experienced that, that, that moment in time. Uh, and, it, you know, how often do we really get to go back, you know, 40 years or whatever it was to, to revisit a moment in our lives? So, um, yeah, and it was, uh, I, I know I'm, I was actually quite surprised that people felt it was uh, kind of intimate, if you will, or um, I know when I first showed it to Sondheim, uh, his first remark was, it's so personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess why not? I mean, uh, I, I think we learn about ourselves, um, by doing something, a project like this. And so I didn't want it just to be a factual account. I wanted it to sort of be an emotional account as well. Yeah, it definitely has that feel to it. It's, I mean, it's, it's a book about how a group of people put together a, a show and, and those can, can sometimes be a bit dry, but this really had, you know, it had, for lack of a better word, it had a lot of drama in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, I've always been fascinated uh, why Sondheim embraced me as a collaborator when I was so inexperienced in the field. 
And uh, also, I wrote the book because it gave me an opportunity to sit down with him, which is always a joyous opportunity. And um, it was fun to revisit our own experience and how that show came together. I thought it would be a great book for students. Um, As I say in the introduction, uh, when I just happened to begin working in the theater with no real background in it, I looked for books to read, particularly about directing, and found there was really a dearth of them, and very few were very helpful. Actually, none of them were very helpful. So I thought this might be something I could share with other people. In uh, Harold Clerman's directing book, one of his pieces of advice is always wear your best suit to the first day of rehearsal so they know you're serious. Oh, my God. You know, that was the one book that kind of stood out to me because he just sort of said, well, you know, all you have to do is, you know, cast it right and get the right theater. And, you know, it was kind of like an ABC. And I thought, Mm -hmm. well, okay, but what is the right theater and how do you cast people? And, you know, it didn't really help me with the nuts and bolts of achieving those ends. Right. Yeah. You mentioned using it in, in a classroom setting and I think it could be very useful in that, in that setting. I actually, when I was in graduate school, I took a class on musical theater with Janine Tesori, who's Uh mentioned in the book and Sunday in the park with George was one of the, one of the texts that she used. And I could very easily imagine using this book rather than just the, the, the script of the book, uh, uh, in future iterations of that class. She was like an intern on that production or something, right? Yeah, she was. And um, terrific, terrific composer and person. Um, yeah, I really tried to cover all the bases. You know, that's why I, I went into details about um, the design, the de- design process and even the business side of what's involved in putting on a commercial show. Um, uh, I know some people you know, might not have been that interested in the business side of it. Um, and they can just skip that chapter. (laughs) Um, Other people who are on the business side of it should really know what goes on when a show gets put together because they're never in the room. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I tried to, um, kind of do an anatomy of, of, of the birth of, of, of a new show. You mentioned the business chapter, and I've, I found that chapter, I mean, I, I have no head for business at all, but I found that chapter fascinating in just how sort of like, again, theatrical it was, like one of the people negotiating contracts literally turns up the thermostat in the office and is like, I'm going to sweat you out. Like, that's that's like something out of the producers. I know. And these were just kinds of things that I learned about. I mean, there's a lot in that book that I had no idea that of what was going on behind the scenes. So for me, that was kind of a delight to be able to find out, well, like, what were you guys talking about when this was going on amongst yourselves? And uh, particularly that business thing was something I didn't know about at all. I remember we had this business meeting and for some reason, uh, the head of the Schubert organization wanted Steve and I there. And I, uh, we sat there for about 10 minutes. And then Steve just looked at me and says, we're leaving now. <laughs> That's what we did. <laughs> it, must be, it must have been nice to have a collaborator who'd kind of been around the block a few times. Oh, yeah. Well, he was, you know, he was uh, the 300-pound gorilla in the room or whatever that expression is. Yeah, right. everyone... You know, that's why they were doing the show. They certainly weren't doing the show because of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if he died at 30, he, he would have, his place in the canon would have been secure. <laughs> well, that's true, actually. Yeah. 
Um, I'd love to talk about some of the influences that went into this piece. You you, you really uh, were were a downtown theater guy, or you know, a downtown art scene. I mean, this is the early '80s, so the 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 walls between theater and music and you know performance art were were very porous in that scene. And and you mentioned people like Richard Foreman, Robert Wilson, Meredith Monk, and, and that's one of the things that struck me about the musical when I first saw it as a teenager was how the music sounded more like kind of you know minimalist contemporary classical music than like Rodgers and Hammerstein. Huh. So obviously there's the Rodgers and Hammerstein influence as there is in everything that Sondheim wrote. Could could you talk about how the influence of those kind of more avant-garde artists kind of found its way into this piece? Well, you know, um, it has to be said that Sondheim was also uh, interested in the downtown scene, the avant-garde scene. Um, what always impressed me about him um, through his entire life as he was always thought of as a Broadway baby. But in fact, he had um, a real thirst for all kinds of theater and all kinds of dance. And so I think uh, that w- was really influencing him as well. And particularly when I came on board um, and offered a kind of more abstract uh, outlet for that kind of uh, musical thinking, uh, it, it allowed him to maybe go in a different direction than he was used to going. Mm-hmm. Could you give a give us a little bit of the story of how you did become professionally involved with theater? Oh, it, it was fairly bizarre. Um, I really I was interested in the visual arts, and I went to do graduate work in photography. And uh, I took some graphic design courses when I was in graduate school. And when I got out of school, I moved to New York and uh, worked as a photographer. Though my intention was to be a fine art photographer in the sort of, you know, Robert Frank school. And I really hated making my living as a commercial photographer. I mean, I was doing journalism work primarily. So I switched over to graphic design as a freelancer because it it, um, didn't make me hate picking up the camera. And I uh, had a friend in undergraduate school who was at the graduate program in drama at Yale. And they had a magazine called Yale theater that was uh, designed by the graphic design students at Yale. And uh, that program was more corporate oriented, uh, more classical graphic design, and they were looking for something more theatrical. So he recommended me. I showed my portfolio to the editors and the Dean of the school, and they hired me to do, um, the design of Yale theater for a year. And after that year, Robert Brustein, who was the Dean created a position for me in the Yale school of drama as a graphic designer, uh, for all the, the theater, the ads, uh, the programs, all the things that were being done there at the Yale rep. And that's how I became interested in theater. Cause I was hanging out there and watching all the student productions and the, um, YRT productions and um, Brustein did something interesting was uh, he created uh, two weeks in January where he made all the student body and the professors as well uh, work in some uh, manner outside their own area of expertise and I was teaching a course as part of my job in graphic design uh, for the administrative students and they suggested that maybe I should I should direct a play because I was always talking to them about Robert Wilson and Foreman and all these people that they were unfamiliar with. So I said, find me a play. And they 
found this play called Photograph um, by Gertrude Stein. And I looked at the title and I thought, well, that I know something about. And <laughs> it turned out to be really a poem in five acts. It was only three pages long. But I was used to, you know, that kind of theater. So we hustled together a bunch of actors and I got in a room and I put together um, this kind of poem play, which I think ran for about an hour and 10 minutes. And we did the play about seven times. And my visuals were all photographs, which was exciting about it. So um, Lee Brewer, who happened to be also at the school at the time, really liked it. And uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time was the one who produced it as part of her um, two weeks. And she said, you should do it in New York. And they found uh, a loft for me in Soho and Uh, We put it on there. I mean, it was so Mickey and Judy putting on a show. We literally put up signs in Soho saying, you know, anybody want to be in a play? I'm not joking. (laughs) Yeah. It was so naive. And then one of the women I knew in New York said, what can I do to help? And I said, you know, I have no idea how people get reviewers to things. Maybe you could get some reviewers. And she just picked up the phone and called the lead critic of the New York Times and (laughs) sweet-talked him into coming down and seeing it. And he wrote a half-page rave review of the show, and I think he brought his um, young son with him. And that's how I ended up being a director in the theater. <laughs> it's so crazy. It, it, you know, it is crazy, and, and I think even for the time it's a crazy story, but I do get the sense that things were just a bit more wide open back then. There wasn't, you know, the, the kind of development channels hadn't been as well established at the time. I mean, I feel like whenever I talk to somebody from, you know, your generation of theater artists and they say, you know, how do you get your first play up? And they say, well, I gave it to Joe Papp and he liked it, so he put it up in the public. And it's like, there's, that would be, I mean, obviously Joe Papp is dead, but but that's just not how, that's just not how it's done anymore. Yeah, I mean, you're right it 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 um it it used to be as you used a word earlier porous in a way and you know i think if the lead critic had known anything about off 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 broadway he would have quickly realized that i had absolutely no history there but um you know i think he came down because someone was enthusiastic and called him and um i think it was an education for him in a great way and uh I totally agree with you now. It's uh, I, I really feel for people who are trying to get into the arts and also uh, being able to get into, say, theater from a different perspective, from a, uh, a different field. I don't know how one could even have that experience today. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you feel at the time, like were you, how conscious were you at the time of your experience as a graphic designer, as a photographer, as a visual artist, being your way into the story of Sunday in the Park? Oh, um, well, I didn't think too much about these things, tell you the truth. Um, but actually, in the, the piece photograph I was just talking about, one of the scenes was actually Sunday in the Park. Um, because I love that image so much that I wanted to use it as an image in this piece I was making. And um, so I recreated the painting into a tableau. Uh, So oddly enough, it was something I had already done before I proposed it to Steve. What about that painting grabbed you so much? Well, um, I thought it was bizarre um, and fascinating and endlessly... um, what would be the word? Um, 
it, it, it was ineffable in a way, you know, you, I was sort of glued to it, trying to figure out, uh, A, the mechanics that the painter, you know, it took him two years to paint all those dots. And I thought, well, wow, who does that? And, you know, um, being a graphic designer, of course, dots are a big deal when you're, when you're scanning, uh, back in the day before there were scanners of the variety we have now and everything was broken down into in, in, into pixels and dots. Um, and I was um, just fascinated by um, the, it was almost hieroglyphic in a way that there was these dogs, there was this monkey, there was this form on the right that I couldn't figure out what it was. It was just full of mystery to it. Um, and the perspectives were all off. It was just a visual delight. Uh, and a mystery, and I guess uh, captured my imagination. There's a great part where I think you go to the Art Institute of Chicago and you're talking to the curators about the painting, and you say, what's this mysterious object here? And one of them says, it's a baby carriage, and the other one says, it's a waffle iron. <laughs> so there's, there's the sense that even the experts haven't you know, exhausted the possibilities of this. Painting. I know. It was fun. It was fun. Um I, I love that about the painting, and I think that's a testament to its longevity. Did it change how you saw the painting when you saw it in person? Well, uh, I don't think I saw any reproductions of it before I saw it in person. I was uh, in Chicago because my dad sometimes, who was a traveling uh, salesman a lot, worked a lot in Chicago, and he took me one summer there and I took myself off to the museum and that's where I saw it. Um, at the time I didn't have any real background in, in art history or anything, but I do remember it made such an impression on me uh, that obviously it stayed with me for a very long time. I feel like now that painting and Sunday in the park with George are so intertwined. It's, it's difficult for me to imagine kind of what that painting would look like without the musical. I mean, the first time I saw, I saw it in Chicago when I was, I think 16 and I'd seen the musical already. So it was like, Uh, Oh, this is the painting from the musical. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, there's something about it that is, is, um, it's a magnet for people. Um, and uh, it's interesting how we just went back, Steve and I, um, about a year or two ago, we about two years ago, and we had a, they had a little um, gathering in front of the painting just to celebrate it and celebrate the musical, and they did some numbers from it. And then we realized they had changed the, um, put the little, a little plaque beside the painting uh, which was really very touching, uh, sort of celebrating the fact of our musical along with the painting itself. That's lovely. Could you tell us how you first became acquainted with Stephen Sondheim and kind of what your first impressions of him were? Uh, Well, I wasn't familiar with his work, really. Of course, I knew the name, um, but I didn't go to the theater that much. And when I did go, it was the downtown stuff. But I did see Sweeney Todd. I'm not sure why I went to see it, um, but I I was bowled over by it and went two other additional times to see it. I had never seen anything like that. I thought Hal Prince's production was remarkable. And I thought it was just, I just thought the whole thing was literally perfect. And um, so we were introduced in an odd way um, by a Broadway producer uh, because I was looking for someone to 
uh, write a score for a musicalization of A Cool Million, which is a Nathaniel West novella that I always kind of loved. And and so uh, Lewis called up um, Steve and Steve said, oh, I've seen his shows. He actually, much to my amazement, had seen three of my shows and I'd only seen one of his. <laughs> <laughs> and seeing I had probably only done four shows, that was pretty remarkable. And, um, but I had no sense of him. I knew nothing about him. I knew no one who knew him. I just came in cold and, um, we just, uh, kind of hit it off very relaxed. I think it was a Sunday, in fact, uh, that I went to visit him. And, um, as I write in the book, the first thing he did was pick up a joint and light it, which I thought was kind of unusual way to meet somebody, but it turned out to be kind of putting us, I didn't realize he was in retrospect, kind of nervous around me. I mm-hmm. think in those days, Steve was a little shy. And um, I think he, rather than have a drink in the middle of the afternoon, he rolled a joint and it kind of relaxed us both. But I was very relaxed. I was very fascinated by where he lived. I, You know, I had never really been in like a town. I had literally never been in a townhouse in New York. Um so, and his house was filled with all these wonderful objects and games. And, you know, it was hard to focus on him because I was looking at the walls so much, fig- trying to figure out what he had hung all over the place. So it was, it was great. It was fantastic. And I don't know why we clicked, but we just clicked. Mm-hmm. And Sondheim famously loved puzzles and games and, and things mm-hmm. like that, which, which makes sense to me. I mean, putting it together, a play or a musical is so much a puzzle. Yeah, and that and that painting is a puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, in in its way. Uh, and I could once we sort of settled on or came to look at that image together, we just realized, oh my God, there's so many interesting things here. I, one of the things I love about the story of this musical being put together is that it's the it's the la- it's the next thing that Sondheim did after Merrily We Roll Along, which had had closed very quickly and was had received negative reviews. And I almost feel like there's a sense that, you know, the critics said, well, this, this musical is, it's too weird and too experimental. And it's not what you expect when you go to Broadway. And, and Stephen sort of said, well, I'll show you experimental. <laughs> I never saw it actually. I, I mean, when I hear it in those, not terms, many people did. <laughs> well, there's that. Um, I ended up directing it, but I, I don't get that, but then I was not a Broadway baby, and mm-hmm. to me, the score is unbelievably commercial Broadway. Um, I don't. I guess you know it's based on a Kaufman and Hart from the '30s, so right. you know it was a Broadway play uh, initially. So I, I don't. I, I didn't know that that was its reception. Tell you the truth, I didn't know that they thought it was too weird. I just thought they didn't think it worked. Um, and that probably had a lot to do with because it was cast with teenagers. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, I love the story of Sondheim calling you up after your, you did a production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream right. uh, in, in the, in Shakespeare in the, through Shakespeare in the park. And, and it, it got a bad review, um, I think in the times and, and he sort of called you over and showed him all of his bad reviews. Yeah. He called me first thing the next day. And I, of course, you know, so this was when I was still reading reviews, which I've spared myself from for decades now, but uh, and yes, that critic said I should really not be in the theater and should be a landscape architect or something weird like that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, so Sondheim called me the very first thing the next day. And I, after having read the review, thought, oh, well, I guess Stephen Sondheim won't be working with me. And um, when he called, he couldn't have been more generous and, and, and said to me, yeah, come on over and I'll show you my, my bad reviews. And I thought he was joking, but in fact, he does have scrapbooks of all of his reviews. But of course, and I think most people don't realize this, is he did get a lot of bad reviews. And one thinks of Sondheim as the giant he is, that he would have gone through life just being Stravinsky or something. Of course, Stravinsky got some bad reviews, too. <laughs> so one of the things that's interesting to me about your process on uh, on this musical on Sunday in the Park with George is that after you and Sondheim had decided to uh, to at least attempt a musical based on this painting, you, you kind of just launched right into it. Like you didn't, you know, I think my instinct would have been to, you know, go to the library and, and get a book about Seurat or the Impressionists or something like that. But you kind of just started writing. Why, why did you kind of take that approach? I think because I came from the visual arts, um, you know, when you're drawing a picture or when you're designing something, um, you know, you're, you're reacting to it visually. And that's what I was doing to that painting. I wasn't uh, reacting to the painter. I was reacting to the painting and bringing it to life in my head and uh, just sort of um, intuiting these characters and the situation and um, just seeing where my imagination took me without having any information about it at all, which I think in retrospect was kind of interesting because it was the painting that informed the show and not the painter. Obviously, uh, as time went on, uh, and we started doing a lot of research on it, Steve even more than myself. Um, but I, I just, that's just kind of how I worked, you know, uh, and probably still do. I feel like it's it's kind of fascinating how much of the character you kind of got right just from the painting. But I guess it's maybe not that remarkable. I mean, a guy who makes a painting with millions of tiny dots is probably an, an obsessive at some degree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, that, that was, as you say, kind of obvious. But um, what I didn't put together was the reclusiveness of somebody who does that. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that he was a big failure in his lifetime. Um, so a lot of these things that that came to be known to us really are what informed the second act, actually, more than the first. Mm. 
you directed the first production Ascending in the Park with George. Do you think that it's fair to say that you had a clearer idea of what you wanted visually than of how to work with actors? Oh, yes. I think that was my impulse. Um, I think it's always my impulse, although some things have become less visually um, important to a story than it was at the beginning. But yeah, um, I mean, frankly, I really, I loved every aspect of doing it and writing it. And what I love about directing is the design, the design aspect of it, of seeing what's in your head come to life. And I love working with designers. Once I got in the room with actors, that was a different story. Did you ever, I mean, I, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't around. I'm, I'm not, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but did you ever think that maybe directing and writing the book of this musical was, was, was too much that you should have it offloaded is, that responsibility to somebody else? It was stupid. You mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well, I certainly didn't think about it at the time. Um, I don't know, you know, later in my career, I did write a play and I did have someone else direct it. And it was really a bad experience. Um, And my wife said to me, you know, you, for whatever reason, just have to direct your own stuff. And I don't know why that is. You know, when I direct something new, I'm rewriting it as I go along as well. And um, maybe there are a few directors. I mean, what I love doing is seeing all these productions that are done of shows that I've directed first and see what other people do to it. Um, but in, for, for me, in terms of developing what's on the page, I somehow have to, I guess I feel I have to write it as well. Yeah. Maybe I don't, but I, that's just my process. And, you know, there it is. So at this point in your career, you've written plays, you've written many musicals, you've directed, I think, both plays and musicals, right? Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think of yourself as a director, as a librettist, as a playwright? Do you, do you not think about it in those terms? Nah. I mean, I, I mean, I guess you'd say I'm a theater artist. I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, again, I have to keep coming back to what was going on downtown. And, um, you know, that's a lot of what the avant-garde work of those people you mentioned earlier. That's what they did. You know, they created these uh, stories and and these visual images and this form of storytelling. So that's what I was influenced by. You know, had it gone a different way, I might have done something else, had a different career, maybe not become a writer, been a director. But, um, you know, I'm, it, it, it is what interested me. And I think that's what I have tried to follow in my life. I haven't always. And I've done some directed movies that other people wrote. You know, I've had other kinds of gigs. Mm -hmm. One of the questions Sondheim kept asking you as you were collaborating on this piece was why it's a, why Sunday in the park with George was a musical rather than just Mm -hmm. a play, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, that's a, that's a question that anyone writing a musical asks themselves or gets asked by a producer if they don't ask themselves, what would be your answer to that question now? Well, first of all, everyone does not ask themselves that. <laughs> and they, there are some, some who should have. Um, what would be my answer to that? Well, um, golly, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a reverse question in a way because Sondheim had to answer it for himself and he solved it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think... Um, 
that's what any composer or composer lyricist has to do if they're confronted with subject matter or a script or an adaptation is figure out why it has to be a musical. I mean, sometimes it doesn't and they make it anyway, but um, I guess first and foremost, you have to say, are these characters who sing? Yeah. Do you want to hear, can I give you my theory of why it's a musical and you can tell me what you think of it? I'd love to hear your theory. Okay. My theory of why it has to be a musical is that George is the kind of person who can't express himself through words. I mean, when he tries to express how he feels to Dot, he pretty much fails to, to to kind of get across to her why he has to be the way he is in terms of why he has to devote so much of himself to his art. And yet when he sings about it, singing gives us kind of direct access to his interiority and to the feelings that he can't express. And so... In a way, it's it's like he he has to sing. I mean, this is I, I hope this doesn't sound like a cliche, but he has to sing because he's the kind of person for whom language alone isn't enough. It's almost that he's not emotional, or at least overtly, and that's why he has to sing. Uh, okay, I buy that. Why does the second act George have to sing? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I, let's let's talk about the second act because the second act is is sort of famously um i don't know strange <laughs> and i've talked to people who say there shouldn't be a second act i i really disagree with that yeah. um and for me i think what what the first act is about is you know the sacrifices a brilliant genius artist makes to make brilliant genius art that if even if it's not appreciated in this time you know is now recognized as brilliant um which is which is great you know it's a it's an interesting story but to me i th- feel like we don't he doesn't know at the time that he's going to be remembered as a genius and nobody who's working in their time knows how they'll be remembered. And so the second act, George is sort of a a version of an artist who, you know, it seems skilled, seems talented, but if he, the question of, is he going to rise above the general level of his generation and be remembered for all time, is still an open question for him. And so the questions of how much of his, sort of personal life should he sacrifice to make his art is actually a much more open question than it is for first act George. Hmm. Well, let me give that a little thought. Um, I mean, the intention was, and one doesn't really want to explain it because I think, I, th- I think it's explained in the piece for people who are watching it, but this is what success does. The second act is what success does. You know, what would have mm. happened to the first act, George, if that painting became the most exciting thing of, of its time and was bought for the most money and suddenly he was success, success and had money and women falling all over him. I mean, would that have changed his art? Um, you know, I think success has a price too. And um, so the second act was... Um, somewhat not only looking at the current art world of that moment anyway, but also um, in order to be a success in our culture, and particularly even today, for instance, when so much is is media-driven and, and self-promotion is, is almost necessary to make a mark, um, it just, it, you know, a lot of it was about that and what the cost of that is to the art that you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of things going on and why we did the second act. And I think, uh, 
you know, there are those people who like it and don't think it's necessary. And are those people like the last time they did this Broadway revival, I can't tell you how many people said, Oh, I didn't like the second act when I first saw it. Now I like it better. You know? So, um, kind of like that. And that, that originally it was going to be a three actor. And the first act was going to be what we have now. The second act was going to be the life of the painting, which had an interesting story to it and how it got to the Chicago Art Institute. And then the last act was going to be the today or what was then today. And mm-hmm. we just dropped the second act and made our third act the second act. That question of what is the cost of success? That is something that Sondheim had been thinking about in other musicals as well. Like that's, that's sort of what Merrily We're All Along is about. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I think it's different. Um, yeah, no, you know, I, I, of course that's absolutely true. And I think I saw it differently because I didn't have, I wasn't Hal and Steve. I didn't have that kind of success when I was writing it. You know, I was, mm-hmm. I was perfectly, prepared to go back to graphic design, frankly, or downtown or doing strange one acts or whatever. It was not my goal in life to be a Broadway, you know, person, um, a commercial person. So it was kind of curious how it all came about. I think a lot of people see at least, I mean, I guess what you're saying is second act George is this as well, but I think a lot of people see George in the first act is in some ways a stand in for Sondheim. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to hear what aspects of your personality did you put into that character? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because at the time when the reviews all came out, and you know, almost everybody made that assumption. It was so weird to me because I thought, well, wait a minute, I wrote this. (laughs) You know, I mean, you could say that's what he was attracted to. But, um, you know, those elements of what George were were all in the book steve didn't even write a song before there was a first act written mm-hmm. um so i thought that was that was like a surprise to me and i thought was it because he has a beard i don't know <laughs> i was just trying to figure <laughs> out um I, of course now i can look back and see obviously why people made that assumption and it, i think it's interesting what we do and why we do it um so uh, I don't think either, neither Steve or I are the kind of people who really have that form of self-examination when we're writing something. I think we just were both stoned and went with our gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song Putting It Together in the second act is kind of about how you get the money to do a big, ambitious art project. Right. Uh, w- was that in some way inspired by the process of of getting... Sunday in the Park to Broadway. I don't think that song was written when it was at Playwrights Horizons, was it? Yeah, uh, a, a version of it. It was called, uh, not putting it together, but Gotta Keep Them Humming, it was called. Well, no, it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with Steve, because Steve was the one who in his early career had to go around and back to backers auditions and sing his scores and hope people would put up money to do the show. So it had Sunday was just the opposite. Um, and it was just the Schubert's coming to see it and say, okay, we're putting it on Broadway when it wasn't even finished, which is in and of itself a, a very crazy thing to do. But I think it's, we talk about that in the book, talk to Manny Eisenberg about it, who also was scratching his head saying, why are these people doing this on Broadway? So no, Steve by then had already 
been minted and um, uh, he didn't need to sell his work. There were buyers whenever for everything he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really comes through about Sondheim in the book is how much stock he put in sort of old school theater etiquette. Like he's always telling people, you must never do this, or you must never talk to an actor that way, or or something or, or things like that. Is that something that you kind of learned from him? Well, I learned a, a whole shitload from him. Um, I, I don't remember anything that specific um, about that, no. Uh I mean, the other actors were telling me the things I said to actors were things I shouldn't tell, say. Now, I, what I learned from Steve um, was what a classy guy he was yeah. and uh, a kind of etiquette and respect um, that he had for collaboration, um, for his interactions with actors and, you know, musical directors and whatnot. You know, that was my education at least in terms of putting up a show. But uh, no, we, you know, the thing about Steve was he, once we got into the theater, I never saw him. He, mm-hmm. he remained at home working and it was really hard to get him down actually into the fray. And he'd usually only come when he had a song to teach. Um, so no, there was, and, and that was in many ways, um, hard for me because he was a giant when he walked in the room people were during Sunday it was it was like oh yeah that's why we're really doing this show we're not really doing it with this young guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing so um, that was kind of the dynamic at the time so you maybe would have wanted to have his authority in the room backing you up a little bit more no I was perfectly happy not to have him there I mean uh, you know uh, no he wouldn't want to, I don't want anybody to be anywhere they don't want to be. And he didn't want to be there and it was fine with me, you know. I mean, um, I, 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 in retrospect, I just didn't have the knowledge to know what the dynamics were in a situation like this. And um, so uh, it was just naivete. Um, I don't know how else to put it. I know, you know, it feels like it can be dissected, but it really... At the time, I had my hands full, and I was just concentrating on what I had to do. And theoretically, he had his hands full and was doing what he was doing at home. And, um, you know, what really matters at the end of the day is what goes up at night. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether somebody is having a hard time or they yell at you or don't like you or whatever, you, you know, that's the kind of distraction you don't want to get involved with. And I think that's why he stayed away. And he was very good later, you know, when we had such a hard time with um, passion, he was fantastic because he was almost dispassionate about it. And he would come see the show and then we'd go out afterwards over drinks and he would have his notes and it would be like, okay, let's analyze this. And then we would analyze every aspect of the show that didn't seem to work or the audience seemed to laugh when they shouldn't laugh. And um, so I think by staying away, he actually brought a fresh eye to what was going on. So, you know, I think it was quite helpful. Mm -hmm. One interesting aspect of the second act is the chroma looms, which are a sort of futuristic installation piece, uh, which I learned from the book cost about as much as the rest of the set. Um, How did you imagine these chroma looms when you first conceived of them? 
Well, uh, I, I'm trying to think now, you know, we're talking a long time ago. I mean, I wanted an object. I wanted an incredible, impressive object. So you could see that this character of George was no slouch, that -hmm. whatever he did was something that was interesting to people and uh, visually interesting and um, gave him some credibility. So that was an important thing to do. Uh, rather than have it be some kind of jokey thing. Um, and then it was just, you know, it was just really based on the theme of chroma. He would have been inspired by Seurat's theory of chromoluminarism uh, and what light and color does. So, uh, you know, the song Color and Light in the first act. So the, the, those were the principles that drove um you know, the collaboration on creating the Chromalum with Brand Farron, who was kind of a out there uh, invention guy. Mm-hmm. In the Broadway revival, the most recent revival, it, I, I, if I'm remembering it correctly, it wasn't a, a physical object in the middle right. of the stage in the way it was in the original production. Well, it, made, they made it kind of environmental. There were these lights that came down and danced around and uh, it was also very impressive. I've seen every imaginable version of this, as you can imagine. And for the most part, most people don't have an object on stage. It's easier to mm-hmm. create with just light. But yeah, I was quite impressed with what they did in the revival. I thought it was, um, it brought the audience in, which was interesting. Uh, you know, we had those, stro- um, you know, those lights, um, surrounding the audience but not but this was a really interesting thing that they did it was almost like dancing light to the music yeah yeah i remember that being really effective in that production um it was also funny i'm sorry to interrupt but it was also funny because it was the most elaborate thing in that production too you know that that production had a very simple minimal first act uh with just projections and whatnot and you know, this was interesting because they put the technology front and center in the second act. Mm-hmm. This is a, a kind of big question, but why do you think Sunday was, and to some extent remains such a polarizing musical? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I really, be, I, you know, I well, people sometimes I think... say polarizing as a euphemism, but I really, you know, there are people, yeah, there are a I lot mean, of people I who mean, say listen, that's their favorite musical. I mean, listen, it's, I it's... just did a really polarizing musical. I get it. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think that I would rather have, I would rather do something that was polarizing than not, frankly, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to go out on a limb, go out on a limb, you know, and, and um, I don't think any author, you know, starts thinking about how the work is going to be received in the theater until the audience arrives. And then by the time the audience arrives, there's not a shitload you can do about it, you know? <laughs> right. So, um, uh, I have no idea. I just, it, I just think, that uh, there are aspects of both Sunday and the show I just did that people didn't want to engage in. And I guess it would be um, having to do with, I don't know, the thing about Sunday, it was the second act that polarized people. I think most Mm -hmm. people like the first act, you know, the the second act was less user-friendly. So 
I guess that would be the answer to your question. You were quite young when you uh, wrote Sunday in the Park with George. What kind of lessons about how to write the book of a musical do you feel like you would like people to glean from this book? Hmm. Well, you know, sometimes, as I said before, ignorance is bliss. And I think um, because I wasn't schooled in musical theater and I was coming from a different point of view, I didn't know what the form was per se. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that was helpful to me at the time. Now when I write, I'm, I know too much. <laughs> you know, I'm very experienced in doing it and understanding the relationship of music and lyrics to book. Uh, and how you work with that as a director. So um, I, I think there's a theory that we're most creative till something like the age of 35 or something, you know, that your real creativity, and this was something Steve really wrestled with later in life, um, that he didn't have the same kind of uh, creativity, enthusiasm, or um that his thinking wasn't quite what it had been in the past. And my theory on that was because the things that he chose to write about after we did passion were not things that engaged him in the same way. Um, and, and it was sad because we never got to work together again after passion. And, uh, I know he rejected some of my ideas. Um, he had ideas that didn't interest me. And I had ideas that didn't interest him. And, um, I don't know, you know, I can't second guess it. I don't know. I always regret the fact we didn't get to do another one together, but, Mm -hmm. um, and I think he did too. Uh, It just got away from us. Yeah. I sometimes think about uh, Sondheim's career, relative to Shakespeare's career. And they both kind of had a long period before they passed where they didn't produce a lot of new work. I mean, I think Shakespeare fully retired, you know, 15 or so years before he died. Well, you know, Sondheim said to me when the first day I met him that no composer lyricist went out on a hit and he went through every single one of them. Yeah. Half of whom I didn't know anything about, but I guess that, that just happens to be what happened. I think that haunted him a little bit. Yeah. Of course, now you could add Jonathan Larson, but that's a little bit of a special case, obviously. That's, that's really a special case. <laughs> yeah. That's not the ideal circumstance. No. You, you die I, with your Well, you know, look at George Seurat, who went out with nothing. Mm-hmm. 31, you know, had no acclaim whatsoever. Um. You know, I think that was what was interesting to us when we started to learn about Seurat is just how, rather than change his art form uh, to accommodate the audience of the day, he just dug deeper and deeper into it. Was that, I mean, has that been a kind of continuing inspiration for you? I mean, you mentioned your your recent musical, Flying Over Sunset, which is about, you know, sort of three figures from the early 1960s, Cary Grant, Aldous Huxley, and Claire Booth Lewis taking LSD. I mean, that's certainly not a lot of people's idea of a kind of classic commercial Broadway musical. Has, has Surratt's example kind of helped you to continue taking those kind of big swings? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think also I just, 
you know, I don't know why my brain is like my brain and other people's brains are different. It's just what, <laughs> you know, I'm just attached to what interests me. I think the thing yeah. about that Sunset Musical, it sort of became, oddly enough, about LSD in people's eyes. And it really wasn't my intention. My interest was actually in the three people I was writing about and why they were so successful and so unsatisfied and took LSD to find another part of what was going on in their subconscious and whatnot. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, but I'm not too self-analytical, you know, I just kind of do what I do and, um, let the chips fall where they may. I, uh, I heard an interview with, I think it was maybe, Francis Ford Coppola or somebody like that, some a, a film director who said the job of a director is to make the audience obsessed with what you're obsessed with. Mm. That's a good quote. Yeah, I wish I'd I wish I'd remembered who said it. <laughs> well, I think I I think that I'm I don't know. Of course I'm interested in what the audience thinks. And you do know if people are not having a good time and they're streaming out of your theater. I mean, and right. at that point you've got to really go, dude, people are paying money to see this. And, um, you know, what, what, are, what's the story here? I don't mind when they're quiet and attuned and watch. And then when it's over, go, I don't like that. Or I don't know what it meant. Or I, it's not my cup of tea, you know, but when I see audiences that are squirming or are not engaged, then I get then I really have to take on a different kind of job as a director to make sure that the work, if anything, is not boring. Right. Um, and then if people are, you know, as I said, some people are enthusiastic about it and other people are also enthusiastic, but on the other side, um, I, I think that's the job. I mean, that, that's the way it goes. Well, James Lapine, thanks so much for spending all this time talking to me about your wonderful book, putting it together. I really enjoyed getting to talk with you. Well, ditto. Thanks for having me and, um, uh, really appreciate it.